This episode could be triggering for sensitive listeners and contains mature content. It may not be suitable to all listeners. In this episode, there is reference to the abuse of children, so please consider this before listening. Should you need any emotional assistance, please see the show notes for telephone numbers that you can call. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. Any content provided by contributors, such as the host, guests, bloggers, sponsors, or authors, are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. A mother and a father lose their son. They are fraught with pain to the point of denial. And in their hour of need, they turn to their faith. They find a church that understands their pain. And here they receive the promise that their son would come back. And that they can be reunited. Who wouldn't want to believe that? This is Decoding Cults, and I am your host, Palsy. You are listening to Seven Angels Ministry Part 1, Angel Ministries. Just a brief note that during my research, I could not find a lot of information about the early days of the church, nor many detailed descriptions of the inner workings. I know we are used to seeing a more chronological order when we look at cults in other countries, but my other episodes will be more detailed in this regard. I specifically chose to kick off this podcast with Angel Ministries, as it happened right here in my home country of South Africa. I have scoured the internet and have pieced together some information to make a cohesive story. Sentani, more commonly known as Kentani, is a small coastal town 143 kilometers from East London in the Eastern Cape province. This village is surrounded by lush vegetation and has beautiful green hills dotted with informal dwellings. The village has a population of 1,456 predominantly Khoza-speaking inhabitants and is mostly a rural town. It is in this picturesque setting in 1986 where 41-year-old Sipiwo Manoba and his wife Nombongo founded the All Nations God's Evangelical Lamp Ministries shortened to Angel Ministries. Sipiwo started off by going to town halls to perform his sermons. In these sermons, Sipiwo would teach his preachings, pray for the sick, and parishioners would sing hymns and dance in worship. It's not known why they had chosen to start the church, or if they were even legitimate pastors, but we do know that the parishioners were initially drawn to the church because of the miracles that they were performing by praying for the sick. In a City Press article in 2018, a former elder of the church stated that he was one of the first people to join the new ministry. He stated that he was, quote, impressed by the miracles that took place there and the church grew in leaps and bounds, end quote. He had left his own church to join the ministry and following a disagreement with his father, 
presumably over this new church. He gathered all of his belongings and left home to join Angel Ministry permanently. He genuinely believed that he was bringing people closer to God. From what I could gather, newly acquired church members would be amazed at the miracles being performed and started to donate money to the church. I guess that was due to the fact that they were grateful that they had been cured from their ailments. Although, it was later revealed that Simpi was in a circle where buying medication from nurses in town and found a way to give it to the parishioners without their knowledge to ensure that they would feel relief from their ailments. During these early days of the ministry, Sipiwo started to record his teachings on tape and distribute it among the church elders. The elders were then sent from village to village armed with these taped sermons to spread the word about their ministry and its leaders' teachings. The former elder from the City Press article mentioned that they would, quote, take members out of their own churches and bring them home to Mangloba, end quote. The elders were only given a small amount of money to fund their travels. The former elder also stated, quote, In all the years I'd been in the ministry, I got less than a hundred rand so that I could buy a few things as I travelled from village to village, end quote. He further stated, quote, Initially, I believed that we had been given these humble stipends from the small donations made by the people who made free will offerings, end quote. It would later become clear to him that this was not the case and not all of the elders were being treated equally. As the church's membership grew, with more and more parishioners moving out onto the compound at the church, so did its leader's ego. It was around this time where Sipiwo started to refer to himself as the new Moses, who was responsible for all of the miracles being performed. The congregants started referring to him as such, but the former elder was not comfortable with this, and when he started to ask what was happening, he was met with, quote, a thick air of arrogance, end quote. For me, it is very hard to understand how people would accept this new title or believe many of the things that they would be told. What we need to understand is that in these cults, followers are not exposed to all of the strange information at one time. The leader will usually test the waters with small things that may seem strange at first, but then back it up with something truthful. My friend referred me to a book called Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. And in this book, he refers to a term called default to truth. In layman terms, a person is built to believe what they are told is the truth. So when they are presented with something that may be a little offbeat, they might accept it as truth because the rest of the information given rings true to them. Now, in the research I've done around cults and the indoctrination, I have found that where in mainstream religion people worship a deity or a god, in cults the leader would put themselves forward as a form of deity, and in some cases the only vessel that could lead you on your path. By doing this, they are basically getting their followers to start worshipping them. In Sapiwa's case, my guess is that his miracles were so believable that he could then convince his followers of more strange beliefs, as he had already hooked them. At one point, Sipiwo Mangloba became friends with Ndumi Jali, who was a pastor and a prominent businessman in KwaZulu-Natal. This friendship would become very significant in the future. One day, Sipiwo started telling his wife that the children that she had borne him were not hers, but they were God's children. He would tell her this repeatedly, 
and she stated in an interview, quote, I believed him because many things he said would happen, happened, end quote. So people had told people that he had been chosen to bring angels to earth. He said that God's spirit told him that angels would descend from heaven into his wife's womb, one by one, until there were seven. These sons, in order, are Tandazile, Zolisa, Pelile, Putumile, Banele, Ephraim, and Benjamin. Just a side note, they actually had ten children, but three of them were daughters, and although they were also referred to as angels, they did not get to be actively involved in the running of the church. The girls were instructed to deal with so-called female matters, such as helping their mother be midwives to women who were pregnant and giving birth at the compound. These innocent little babies would become the next generation in the cult. We can clearly see here that there was a high sense of patriarchy within the system, and sons were revered above daughters. The women within the cult did, however, respect Nombongo, and one ex-member said that, quote, She's a strong figure, a leader. She provides direction and gives instructions. She can hear or feel things that happen from many miles away. She has a strong spiritual connection that enables her to do this, end quote. As time moved on, younger men and boys were being promoted into leadership positions, who reported directly to Supiwo. I can only surmise that this was because they were more influenceable and did not have time to experience life and form their own opinions on any matters outside of the church and its teachings. These new leaders, quote, took on an air of authority that suggested that they had special powers and could do as they pleased, end quote. Some information that I have found around the characteristics of a cult is that they separate most of their supporters and new recruits from the inner workings of the organization. I think this is to keep them above the masses and to create an air of mystery around the leader. It could also be that they are afraid that if the general parishioners find out what they're actually doing, they will leave the church. We also know that leaders of these cults are motivated by either sex, money, power, or all three of these things. As it will become clear, my opinion is that in this cult, it was all three. With an increase in membership, the leaders and those of the inner circle's lifestyles also began to change. A person who was interviewed in the Sunday World explained that one of her relatives who was a nurse left her nursing post in the 1990s, packed up all of her belongings and took her children to go live at the compound. This had shocked the small close community. She was also told that they could not greet people or even their relatives. The followers who came to live at the church were living a very humble lifestyle at the compound, although the founders and the inner circle led very luxurious lifestyles. Eventually, many of the followers would quit their jobs, sell off their properties, and even cash in their pension funds, which they would donate to the church, all because they thought it would bring them closer to God. In 1995, Sipiwo pulled his children out of school. The eldest, Tandazile, was in standard 3, or grade 5 at the time. His reasoning behind this was that Satan had infiltrated the educational system and had also breathed his evil into our constitution. In an interview in 2018, Banele Mangloba, one of Sipiwo's sons, stated, quote, 
according to a word by God to my father, the South African constitution and its schooling system was and still is sinful. My father believed our future, as his sons, was not in school, but with God. End quote. If you were wondering what his wife thought about this, she states in an interview, quote, When my husband said that the Holy Spirit said children must not attend school anymore, it was easy for me. I know my mother did not go to school. End quote. Sapiwo did, however, at the beginning of each school year, call a meeting with his followers and asked if they would like to attend school. None of them did. To be honest, if I had been taught that the devil had invaded the educational system and that school was evil, I would not want to go either. Followers gave up their identification document, and those children born on the compound didn't even receive birth certificates. One theory that I do have around this was that during the early 1990s, when the apartheid regime came to an end and previously disadvantaged people were able to go to any school and move around South Africa freely and even move to previously white neighborhoods, that may have contributed to this move. I can only guess that the reason behind this turn in beliefs may have sprung from the fact that should his followers have more freedom of movement and the right to a good quality education, they may leave the ministry. Another factor could be that in many cults, the leader creates a type of us-versus-them attitude. They may say that they are the chosen ones and the outside world would not understand or that their teaching is the truth and everyone else is the enemy. This is another characteristic of a cult, where the leader starts to separate its members from those people outside of the cult. Given these new beliefs, I can understand why the followers from their point of view would not have birth certificates for any of the children born into the cult, or where in some cases, followers gave up their ID documentation. They would obviously not want to be associated with anything to do with the devil. By having members give up their worldly possessions to live with them on the compound, and then go a step further and get their children out of school, it was just basically a way to exercise greater power over them. Having people live on the compound gave the leaders more control over their members' movements and the information that they would receive. My deduction from this is that when people are cut off from the outside world, they have no outside reference to see if what their leader is saying is true. So they will believe what they are told, and thus do what they are told. The former elder overheard a conversation where some of the new leaders were discussing what they had been paid. He stated that he was, quote, absolutely shocked mainly because I was not aware that there were members who were getting paid money to be part of the ministry, end quote. After 10 years of traveling and converting people with the meager stipend, the former elder started to doubt his own involvement in the ministry and stated in the article, quote, It shocked me to learn that there were people resigning from their jobs en masse. We were supposed to bring people to Christ, not to take their wealth from them, end quote. He also stated, quote, we were hypocrites. We became robbers of desperate people. They believed Mangoba and Jolly were the solution to their problems. We were the pirates in a sea full of desperate people. End quote. He also alleged that the ministry paid off local police to make sure that the cult was never fully investigated. Within this statement, there is a sentence that jumped out at me, where the members thought that the leaders were the solution to all their problems. 
Now, another characteristic of a cult is that the leaders state that they are the only ones through which you can find all of life's answers. And, through their progressive indoctrination, the followers would absolutely believe this. And that leads me to the next part, and my explanation on why the followers of Angel Ministries would accept Sapiwa's word without question. In an interview with one of the church members, she stated that she had been a teacher for 20 years and loved her job. But upon joining the ministry, she took her child out of grade 2 and decided to raise him at the church because she believed it would be the best for him, even though she carried on teaching. In the mid-1990s, Sapiwa also started preaching about a millennial Armageddon. From what I could gather, part of his prophecy was that God was coming and that his followers should give up everything and follow him until God comes. He used this fear to convince his congregation to leave Kentani. Now, I can't be sure, but I do know that the non-parishioners in the village were not happy with the goings-on at the church, and the elders of the village wanted to get rid of them. So I think in this case, it was a guise that Sapiwa used to move his congregation out of fear of being kicked out of the village and possibly losing control over his flock. Another reason for this could be that some of these types of leaders preach doomsday events, and they convince their followers that the leader has been chosen to find those people who are worthy to keep them safe when this eventual prophecy comes true. This way, they keep the followers close to them as they are perceived as their only salvation. It was then where the Mangoba family moved to Umzimkulu and joined forces with the Jazi family. Umzimkulu is a town in KwaZulu-Natal, situated about 160 kilometers from Durban and about 400 kilometers from Kintani in the Eastern Cape. It was originally developed as a trading post in 1884. This rural town has a population of 6,519 predominantly Kosa and Zulu-speaking people and is nestled on a mountain next to which the Mzinkulu River flows. It is here in 1998 when Ndumiso Jali, who ran the Crusaders Church, gifted Sipiwa some of his land to place his tents and continue ministering and conducting his many rituals. These tents were equipped with sound systems, but what was strange to me were the handmade makeshift posters that had phrases like super angels and the end written on them. I'm sure this was put up to emphasize the end of day scenario that he had preached. Spiwo had also promoted Ndumisu to one of the senior elders in his church at this time. Despite Jolly's perceived generosity, some of the followers that had come with Sipiwo had noticed an air of violence and coercion around Jolly and his followers. Together, these two men continued to deliver their sermons, and Sipiwo continued to perform his so-called miracles. Sipiwo also travelled throughout South Africa, going to various towns around all of the provinces, ministering from town halls in an effort to get more people to follow him and join him at his church in KZN. Over the next decade, the partnership seemed to thrive, even though the church continued under a cloud of suspicion around their inner workings, and there was a lot of speculation that they were becoming a violent, greedy, and separatist cult. It was also noted by people outside of the church that Tsipiwa was a very cold man and wouldn't greet or even talk to anyone outside of the church, 
but despite this, they still managed to bring in new parishioners. An ex-member of the church explained in a News 24 article that they first encountered the ministry in 1998. In 1997, their brother, who was the first of their family to go to university, had died. Her parents were broken over this and were not willing to accept that he had died. They had heard about the ministry and immediately joined when the leaders promised them that he could live again. This ex-member said alarm bells began to go off, especially when the cult leader urged children to leave school. She was busy with her higher education at college and decided to leave the church. One thing that has always fascinated me is how people get sucked into a cult. You don't just wake up one day and say to yourself, hmm, it's Tuesday, maybe I should join a cult. I have found that the majority of time, people are looking for something, whether it be their place in the world, a need for more meaning in life, or they've suffered a great loss and need an understanding thereof. Whatever it may be, those most vulnerable people are usually sucked in because the cult or church or group gives them that one answer that they've been searching for. There was also mention of cases against Sepiwo in the early 2000s about sexual abuse towards a minor boy. Also, in the News 24 article I mentioned before, the other sister had left the church when she had found out that a child had died after being molested by the organization's founder, Sepiwo Mangloba. In the article she stated, quote, We were in a bitter fight with the leaders because of these allegations and charges. After the death of the child, we were caught up in a bitter fight with the Manglobas. I eventually left and have since been an enemy of the cult. End quote. Both sisters in the aforementioned article stated that at the time of the article, 11 of their family members were still with the church, including some children. Tragically, the nameless child was the real victim of this crime, and I could not find any more information on this poor soul. Now, here's a very fascinating thing that I have found in many cults. Once the indoctrination has taken hold, followers will place their leader or the group above everything else in their lives, including their children, as they truly believe that this is the greatest good. Having said that, when people leave the group, they will be labelled as enemies of the group, and even their close family members will cut them off because of this. I find this very sad. But unfortunately, it's not uncommon. This keeps those members who are still in the group away from any outside criticism over the group. The Charlie family erected a boarding house on the property for children of their followers. Parents would take their children out of school and bring them there to live and be taught outside of the evil educational system. The parents would then also live separately from their kids. By separating families... The leaders were also able to have more control over their followers, as they could more easily break family ties and bonds, and have their followers concentrate more on them. They would also be able to indoctrinate these children from a very young age without any outside influence. In 2013, having received many tick-offs from the surrounding villages, the KZN government officials raided the church. The major concern from the tipsters was around the children not going to school. During this raid, 
62 children between the ages of 3 and 15 were rescued from the illegal boarding house. It was found that these children had come from various towns like Cape Town, Lesotho, Johannesburg and more. Some of the discoveries made during this raid were strange symbols, makeshift altars, red paint markings and doomsday scripture verses all over the walls. The officials noted that they had found around 100 people living in horrific conditions. Initially, the children were not willing to speak to the authorities at all. They even went as far as covering their ears when spoken to. I can only imagine that for a young child who had been taught from birth that schools and the government are from the devil, these people would be very scary. But eventually they did start to open up, and it was here that they admitted to calling Ndumiso their master. Sipiwo, 68 years old at the time, and Ndumiso, 58 years old at the time, along with 33 other parents, faced charges of abuse and deliberate neglect of the children in the Umzimkulu Magistrates Court. Not much more is found around this case, but I do know that Sipiwo and Ndumiso were released on a thousand rand bail each, in March 2013. As for the children, they were slowly integrated back into the educational system by the Department of Social Development. It was also reported that in 2013, police had removed Sipiwo from Umzimkulu and made him stay in the Nyanga village in Ngobo to keep him away from the children at the ministry. This could be due to the previously mentioned case or to the sexual abuse case. The family, of course, did not believe that these accusations were true. At some point, friction started between Sipiwo and Dumiso. This was reportedly over land that Sipiwo was using to house the church's tents. One can also guess that there is not always room at the top for two leaders, and I surmise that they would have bumped heads over this, and could also have clashed over who was to have the most adoration from their followers. It could also have to do with money, or the court cases against them. It all came to a head on 13 April 2015. In one account, in a heated argument over land which became physical, Ndumiso allegedly killed then 70-year-old Sipiwo. There was another account where Ndumiso wanted his land back, but Sipiwo refused to leave. A physical fight broke out between these two leaders, where Sipiwo was killed and his body was burned right there on the church ground. Regardless of the circumstances, the leader of Angel Ministry was dead, and the Jolly family chased the Mangoba family from their property. Sipiwo was cremated, and his sons threw the ashes over the Ngiba Bridge in East London. According to Banele, as they were driving over the bridge, they just, quote, opened the car window and we just threw that from the window, end quote. To me, when he says through that, it's so impersonal and disrespectful of the man that essentially gave them life, and it shows you just how arrogant they would become. In my opinion, another reason for this blatant disregard for their father's ashes could be that they believed that he would return. In an interview, Nombongo, Sipiwo's wife, stated, quote, Yes, he is dead, and he predicted his death date. He will leave his body and he will come back, and we will wait for him. 
end quote. The remaining Mangoba family settled in Nyanga. But being embittered and very angry, they had vowed to go back and deal with the person who had allegedly killed their father. After a time, many of the parishioners who were loyal to Supiwo soon followed the brothers back to the Eastern Cape, as they too were run out of the area. In my next episode, we will look at the birth of the more well-known Seven Angels Ministry, its rise and its ultimate fall. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button and rate and review us. It'll go a long way to improving the podcast. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube, and you can email us at decodingcults at gmail.com. The amazing logo art was created by the tattoo artist Jock Jacobs. Thank you so much for listening.